the Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn here on Westwood One. Joining me this week from the band Wasp is Blackie Lawless. The new album is Reidolized, the soundtrack to the Crimson Idol. And on the other side, from Bisto Blanco, or you might know him as Alice Cooper's bassist, it is Chuck Garrick. But of course, before we get to all of that, uh, we do a little rock talk segment. And joining me for that this time is from Quiet Riot, drummer Frankie Benelli. Uh, pleasure to have you, Frankie. Good to always chat with you, Mr. Mitch. Yes, there's there is so much going on in the world of rock. Of course, I figured I'd have you come on here because we, Wasp, we've got Blackie Lawless. You were, of course, on the original Crimson Idol. But just just before we get to uh, to all of that, um, lots of farewell tours being announced all over the place. Every band seems to be announcing a farewell tour. Are are we getting down to sort of the last five to ten years of classic rock? Are these sort of the the last moments that we can see our favorite bands or what do you think? Well, I think that could be a reality for, uh, for a couple of reasons. One is the age factor. Um, it's no, uh, it's no secret that uh, none of us are, are, you know, young kids anymore. Um, so it's a question of, you know, a lot of, a lot of our, uh, a lot of our musical brothers are dying uh, and a lot of other ones either have health issues or just don't want to put their bodies uh, and their minds through uh, the touring thing anymore. So yeah, it could uh, it could grind uh, to a halt at some point in the foreseeable future. Yeah, and it's really it really is time to support your bands. I mean, it's always been time to support your bands, but now, especially if you're in the classic rock genre, just get out there, buy a ticket to Quiet Ride, buy a ticket to Warrant, go see Kiss. I mean, come on. We're running out of time. Is 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 Quiet Riot sort of thinking about that, or is that not even on your radar? I mean, you're not. There's no farewell tour 2018 2019 just yet, right? You're you're good to go. No, I I don't see that in the future unless there's some uh, some catastrophe. I mean, I always tell people that uh, that you know on uh, on my death when they're sticking me in the ground, uh, they're going to hear me tapping out a tune from the inside. So <laughs> that's great. That's great. Now, of course, you did mention health issues. We've had two that have, uh, you know, Pat Torpy of Mr. Big and the Knack uh, passed away earlier this month um, to Parkinson's. Did you have a chance to know Pat? I, I had a chance to know him and just just a wonderful guy, wonderful musician. Did, did you get to see him a lot on the road and hang out? And what were your impressions of Pat? I, you know, Pat and I were friends. I saw him in L.A. not often because he was always on the road. Uh, and Choir I were always on the road, but you know, he was one of the most dedicated drummers I have ever seen. Um, there's a rehearsal studio that pretty much everybody uses in L.A. called Mates, and uh, and Pat had a room there where he would woodshed and just practice and practice and practice. He was an incredible singer, but the thing I remember the most about Pat was his sense of humor, and he was one of the sweetest, um, most natural giving people I've ever known. So it's it's really a loss. It's loss on a, on a musical level to to the fans of Mr. Big and anything he's done. Uh, but the, those people that knew him um, either casually or knew him well, it's a huge loss because he was such a sweet guy. Yeah, absolutely. And and for those who didn't get a chance to see him uh, perform with the Knack when he was doing that in the early 2000s, he really brought those songs like My Sharona to another level. Just really turned him into these sort of rock. Uh, bigger rock classics than they already are. And of course, the news that came down earlier uh, this month was that Glenn Timpton of Judas Priest also has Parkinson's. Uh, absolute shocker to me. I'm sure that when you saw that, you must have gone, oh, 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 what is that? Right. I mean, how, how did that one affect you? Yeah, it's it's that one is a, a completely different level. It's It's a difficult one to accept because you know, you you tend to you tend to remember people from from some of the greatest moments, and one of the greatest moments was in 1983 when Choir Ride had the honor and privilege to open up um, for Judas Priest on the UK tour, and uh, and all those guys were amazing to us, but especially so with Glenn, uh, an incredible guitarist and uh, and a very very easy to uh, to be around person, so. When I heard that in the news that he was going to step back from uh, from touring, um, you know, you you have to start saying to yourself, well, how how bad is it? How bad is it going to get? And 
all I can do is uh, hope and pray that um, that it's going to be well. And I think it also, again, emphasizes the fact that fans just need to get out there and support the bands because we really, you know, Alice Cooper just turned 70. I don't think he's going to be doing this at 80. We, we've got to get out there and support them. Um, speaking of support, uh, Wasp, Reidolized just came out. You had a chance to support Blackie through the original concept album, through the original process of the Crimson Idol. And he took the time to write this really nice you know, paragraph or, or, or memoir of it in the booklet of Reidolized. Um, talk to me about, first of all, when you saw that, what, what your impressions were, that he, he really took the time to say, Frankie was my guy, he really helped me through this. And then talk to me a little bit about the original Crimson Island, why 25 years later are we still talking about and still having it in this reverence that we have, that we hold it in? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because I only knew about uh, what he had written uh, about me from from something that was posted on my Facebook because um, I you know I didn't I didn't re-record the drums for for the release so I really had no reason uh, to get it I was very happy with the original release so I didn't want to get into comparing it or anything like that um, and then I come to find out from from Blackie because after I saw what he had written I sent him an email uh, to thank him for being so generous and gracious and uh, and then he let me know that you're that I am actually on one of the tracks one of the tracks that that originally didn't make it onto the original release so that was a big surprise to me uh, you, you know Blackie and I go back um, uh, 40 I think it'll be 41 years now I remember last year he sent me an email on the day that we first uh, um, sort of met uh, 40 years ago. So he, you know, he thinks about those things. And, and I, you know, I have a different relationship with Blackie than most people. I don't see him as that guy up on the stage throwing meat out into the audience and, and guzzling down uh, um, um, blood. And, and I don't see him as, as the, the Christian that, that he now is. I just see Blackie as the guy that I met 40 years ago. We were both wearing, you know, black jeans, uh, black T-shirt, uh, some metal belt, and a black leather jacket, and uh, both with black hair. And that's how I will always see him. Um, you know, he's uh, he's a very interesting and unique person. Uh, different people have different uh, relationships and opinions of him. And, and Blackie and I have had our, our problems in the past, but it's never been anything that is that is uh, altered our friendship. You know, we're still great friends. And it's just such a, uh, you know, the, the first time I interviewed Blackie years ago, it didn't go as well as I expected. But on this interview, which your, your folks are going to be hearing in a minute, he was just so kind and so gracious and so nice. It, it's nice to see that as we as we all sort of get older, it's just time to appreciate each other and, and the music and what we've done. Uh, Frankie. Uh, always a pleasure. Of course, Quiet Riot will be on the road this summer. Do do go out and support the band. Um, any last words for folks listening? Yeah, listen, if you're a fan of any particular band, um, you know, just you should be well advised that, and especially if it's a band from, from the 80s or the 70s, um, be well advised that if you say to yourself, well, I'll catch them next time, there may not be a next time. You know, things things change very quickly uh, right now, and especially when you get to be uh, our um, our golden years, uh, sort of speak. So, if you really want to see a band, you know, uh, make the effort to go see them because it may be the last time you'll see them. I, I I can't even tell you how many times I've heard people say, "I wish I had gone to see Choir Ride in 2007," because the next thing I knew in November 2007, Kevin Dubrow died, and I will never get to see uh, Choir Ride with Kevin Dubrow. Yeah, you know what? Uh, I think the uh, the expression is seize the day, seize the moment. Uh, you know, and and if you end, end up seeing Quiet right now and they come back again in 2019, hey, two shows. What's wrong with that, right? Always a pleasure. Absolutely, friend. absolutely. Always a pleasure. And uh, here is, by the way, the one, the only, Blackie Lawless. We are speaking with Blackie Lawless. The new album is Reidolized, the soundtrack to the Crimson Idol. Blackie, a great, great pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So um, talk to me quickly about this album and wanting to revisit it on its 25th anniversary, because the original Crimson Idol, you have Bob Kulik playing on it. You have Stet Howland. You've got Frankie Benelli. Great, great players. Now you've come back and you've revisited. You've got the new band on it. Uh, talk to me about doing that and just how have, has the, the album changed in terms of Sonics as well? 
I would say actually it was the Sonics that have changed more than anything because right. when we first did the record, um, the studio that we were in at the time no longer exists. It was a place that I bought that was in Hollywood and it was the building was destroyed during the the 94 Whittier quake. So that room doesn't exist anymore. So and I know people hear me say that and they're thinking well how big of a deal can that be? Well, it actually it is because it's a combination of things. It's a combination of the room, the people that played on it, uh just all the equipment that's used. There's a lot of a lot of factors that go into making it. So when we did this this time, we really set out to try to make as close to a carbon copy as we could. But the thing that I found, like when we initially went in to set up the drums, we listened to the drum tracks recorded against the old drum tracks. And quite honestly, the Sonics were better this time. So we really tried to go back and to tone them down to try to get them to sound like the old ones were. And But the thing that we found when it came time to mix is that although we got very close on all the instruments, you can get 95% close on all of them. But a whole lot of 95% when you go to put them all together do not end up getting you to where you wanted with the, with the way it sounded in the original. So in, inevitably it's going to be different. So and honestly, in a nutshell... Once we realized that, we then stopped trying to do a carbon copy of it and let it speak to us in its own way. And it took Logan Mater has mixed our last few records, and he came back with a with the first three mixes, and it wasn't there yet. And he did a he did a fourth uh, track on the idol itself, and he took the orchestration and he pushed it forward. And when I heard that, I, I called him and I said, that's it. I said, this thing sounds like a movie soundtrack. It's different than the original. And um, he lives in Las Vegas, and I went out there to mix with him. And when we finished mixing, I took a copy, and I drove down the Vegas Strip for a couple hours one night just listening to it. And I realized it had gone, the original had gone from like a 2D mix to where we are now, which is like a 3D mix. It's it's that it's that different. I mean, the overall vibe of the records are the same, but the sonics are different on this, and I would say that that's really the biggest difference between the two. Yeah, it really is. Uh, talk to me about the original Crimson Idol, if you can. You start off with Headless Children in '89, um, and then the band you make some personnel changes, and you go into making a concept record. Was there any trepidation on the part of the record company and yourself that you would be taking on almost as a solo project, this album, or was it, no, this is just sort of the natural evolution of the band. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was all of those things because <clears throat> when we finished the headless tour, uh, the, the record before that, you had a situation where you had four musicians that were all tra taking separate modes of transportation, four separate dressing rooms, four separate entrances and exits from the stage. So you've got four guys who never see each other until the lights go up to do a show. That show is finished. They don't see each other again until the next show. And it got to be a pretty lonely existence. And I could tell the band was disintegrating. So I say all that to say this, that when it came time to do The Crimson Idol, I had now found myself in a situation that I hadn't been in since I was 15 years old. I had never not been with a band. You know, I, I had been since, like I said, I was 15 years old. I'd always been in a band. Now I don't really have a band. And if that's not enough... I am now going to build my own studio. So, because when we finished Headless, you know, that was, we spent about a year and a half doing that in a commercial studio. And when it was over, I held this little CD in my hand and I looked at it and I said, this is all I get for $600,000. Something's wrong with this new math. You know, this, uh, there's gotta be a better way to do this, you know? So I took the money and I, I built, you know, what became Fort Apache, my studio and uh, so I'm doing all of this, and in the meantime, I don't have a band. 
And that was a really strange place to be. And on top of that, I have a record company who's telling me that this is not the record I should be making, which ironically was the same comment they made on the record before that. And when that record came out, it exploded the first week it came out. So they, they quickly revamped their retooled their thinking on that. So they wanted me to make part two of the headless children. And I said, no, that's not really what I want to do. So I've, I've got all these things that, you know, are, are circling my camp, you know, and, it's kind of hard to circle your wagons when you only got one, you know, so that's really in a nutshell, that's what was going on at the time. So kind of reminded me of the Rutyard Kipling poem. If, you know, if a man can keep his head about him while all the rest of them are freaking out around him, you know, that's really where I was at the time. Yeah. Um, you said in an interview previously that the Crimson Island was about a kid who was a musician, gets famous and all this stuff, and he finds out that fame isn't really what he's looking for. Is that sort of how you approach your career? It, does the Crimson Idol sort of reflect your view on fame and, and record companies? Or um, sort of how do you see yourself in terms of, of fame? Did it, did it sort of turn out the way you wanted it? No. But I would say this, as far as the Jonathan, the lead character in the story, he's about, I, I took a lot of different guys in the business that I know, and I took about 10% of one guy's personality and a little bit from another and a little bit from another, and maybe 10% of myself, and rolled them all together to create this guy who had lived and died long before us and will continue to live and die long after we're gone. You know, this is, this is an old Hollywood story or show business story. And unfortunately, it's happened before and will continue to happen. Um, but I would say the part of me that's in the story is exactly what you said. It was my, my approach towards what I quickly discovered I did and didn't want. And I'll say something to you that may be hard to believe, but I was very naive when it came to the idea of what fame notability and recognizability things like that you know whatever you want to call it <clears throat> notoriety um i had a smorgasbord approach where i could pick and choose the things that i wanted from it and i quickly found that no you don't get to choose from the menu yourself that menu has long since been established and you either take everything that goes with it or you don't and i quickly found that i was the kind of person that didn't like a lot of the things that went on with it. You know, when I was two years old, my first memory of anything in life was listening to Chuck Berry's Sweet Little Sixteen. I remember where I was. I remember what was going on around me. And it was like, it was almost, that song was talking to me like I knew what that was. I didn't, but I felt like I did at the time. And it's my earliest memory of anything in life. So I'm saying that to say that Music was the thing that got into me at a very early age. And like most people, when they go through their teenage years and things like that, you think you want to be famous. And I underline the word think, because what you think you want and what reality ends up being is two completely different things a lot of the times. I would say most of the time it's different. And for me, like I said, I found that those things were a distraction from what it was I really wanted to do, which was concentrate on music. Because there are so many peripheral distractions that can come into your life, especially you know if you've had success. There's a line that I used on this record that I didn't use on the first album. And it comes after the title track, The Idol. And the line says... I had finally made it to the top of the mountain. And when I got there, I looked around and I realized there was nothing there. Right, 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 right. And that really, for me, sums up what that artificial facade of fame, notoriety, whatever you want to call it, that's what that is for me. Because if, if you're living your life for that, you're going, you're cruising for a bruising because you see what happens to people over and over. Like I said, this is not a new story. This is an old story and it's happened and it's going to continue to happen because what happens with a lot of guys, they think that this is fame and fortune is going to be 
the end all for them, and that's going to then give them happiness. And you get there and you find out it's worse because you thought it was going to give you something, and when you got there, that thing didn't exist. So you've been chasing an illusion your whole life. And so because you've had success, you now realize there is nothing else. There is nowhere else to go. And so you see guys a lot of times, they'll either commit suicide quickly or most people take the long approach, you know, which is to kill themselves slowly. But make no mistake, it's suicide nonetheless. And it's because of this unfulfillment that happens because of the illusion of what fame is. And I really wrote the record around that idea. The underlining premise of it was a simple story of a kid looking for love. And quite honestly, I would love to tell you that I knew that the second part was more important than the first, but it was that simple story of a kid looking for love is really what the audience gravitated to more than the complex story of me going into, you know, what happens of the disillusionment of what people discover with fame. So like I said, I'd love to tell you that I planned it like that from the beginning, even though I knew it was in the story. To me, it was part two of the story. It ended up being the thing that people gravitated to the most because it was really a universal story that was quite a bit more simple. So again, I'd love to take credit for that, but it wouldn't be the truth if I told you that. Right, of course. Um, you mentioned Chuck Berry, so I just want to go quickly back to, to the to the seventies, nineteen seventy five in particular, uh, when you were at, of course, at the time, Blackie Guzman, and you got to be on stage with the New York Dolls, probably about fifteen days or, or give or take. What was that experience like? Because they, they were sort of they were going to be the next big thing, and it, it, it never sort of got to that, but. What was it like being in that band and just being part of that scene for that, that, that brief moment of time? It was kind of like watching five guys all trying to be Jim Morrison and succeeding. Um, you know, one of my best friends is Ace Fraley, and I had seen that's probably the two greatest extremes of two different working camps of how you go about trying to do this. And they could not have been more polar opposite. And my inclination was to lean towards the way Gene and Paul did things. And here now I find myself briefly, as it was, in this other situation that couldn't have been further away from what I would have wanted to approach it. Um, but, you know, I've often said that it was, it was the bridge that got me from the East Coast to the West Coast. And so for that, I am grateful. Um, nice place to visit, but I wouldn't want wanted to live there. Yeah, you wouldn't want to go back. Uh, the last album in 2015, Golgotha, is, of course, the uh, the site of Jesus's crucifixion. Talk to me a little bit about the iconography or the religious iconography in uh, the imagery that you project on the Crimson Idol uh, album cover, the name of the last album. Just talk to me about the importance of religion in your life a little bit. I was the, my uncle was a preacher. Dad was Sunday school superintendent. My grandfather was a deacon. So I was there whenever the doors were open. And, you know, I went to church all through my teenage years. Nobody made me go. I went because I wanted to. And, but I quickly, I was I was fighting a war on two different fronts when I got into my late teens. Uh, a big part of it, and I'll be honest, I was just selfish. I just wanted to do what I wanted to do. You know, I had this rebellious streak of just wanting to live for myself. And But also, there was an indoctrination thing that was going on inside the church that I didn't like. And so I left the church, and when I did, when I came to California, I went as far away as you could go. I studied the occult for three years. And I realized after a while that I was just swapping one organized religion out for another. And so I spent the next 20 years or so, you know, on a quest, you know, uh, searching for the, what I, for me, you know, needed to be done. You know, I was looking for what the truth was. And quite honestly, I was trying my best. I was looking at a lot of things, but in the process, one of the things I was doing I was trying to disprove the Bible because I just didn't want to know about it. 
And, uh, I mean, I was a fierce opponent of it. And so, but at the same time, if you're going to be honest with something, you have to, you have to research it. And quite honestly, I was reading one day and it hit me and I, I realized, my God, I'm reading the living word of the living God because I, I could, none of my arguments could refudiate what I was reading anymore. So that's how I came back to my faith. But as far as the imagery of Golgotha, you know, we are in a, the subgenre of music that we're in, <clears throat> which is rock and roll, heavy rock, heavy metal, whatever somebody wants to call that. Um, we are, we are a subgenre. And it's interesting that there's probably never in the history of music that I know of has there ever been a genre or a subgenre or a subculture that was dominated by religious imagery as much as this one is. And now someone could say, yeah, but it depends on what side of the fence you're on. Well, I understand that. But it's still, it is obsessed with Christian imagery. And I thought, okay, if we're going to do that, then let's go, let's, let's go to where the, the truth is. Let's go to a place that in Hebrew means the place of the skull. And if you look at that, that mountain, you know, where, or that hillside that he was crucified on, it looks like a skull, even to this day. And I thought, this is a story waiting to be told. You know, so I thought this is a perfect opportunity for me to, uh, to address this thing that is already so deeply entrenched in this subculture that it couldn't get away from it if it tried, nor does it want to because it loves the idea of the imagery of it. And so I thought this is perfect. Yeah, it really was. Well, was there a moment we, you know, the, the story of you becoming a born again, Christian is, it has been out there in the public. Was there a moment in, you know, that turning point where there was an epiphany? Was there a, an event that led to it? Was it just uh, gaining wisdom through age or was there a point where life just wasn't going well? Sort of, sort of what was that moment where you went, you know what? I need to find my religion again. It was none of those things. Okay. Because I did I didn't feel like I needed anything. I didn't feel like anything was really lacking in my life. I hadn't any, had anything tragic, wasn't sick. Um yeah, I didn't have any of those come to Jesus moments that you hear people talk about. You know, I didn't have any of those. You know, mine was kind of like um you know you know what now that I'm thinking about it, you remember the movie Forrest Gump Absolutely. where Gary where Gary Sinise is sitting on top of the mass and he says, It's just you and me, God. Let's go, you know? Yeah. Well it was it was one of those. And it's like, you know, he jumps in the water with the symbolism of that, you know. And it's like, you know, we're gonna duke this out, you and me, one way or the other, and we're gonna see who's the last man standing. That's really what it was, you know? And like I said, I started reading, and the more I tried to disprove it, the more it was painting me into a corner to a point where I couldn't get out. <clears throat> gotcha. Um, and then when I finally had, you know, that's why I said that the closest thing I could come to that would be what I mentioned before, that I realized one day, oh, my God, I'm reading this living, this thing is alive. You know, and there I can't escape this any further. And I says, "Okay, you got me, bud." Do and you? It's that simple, really. It was that simple. Do you feel any need then to, uh, you know, reconcile your faith with some of the the earlier material on your earlier albums? I mean, you got in trouble with the PMRC. Well, trouble, maybe it's not not the right word, but you know, the word PMRC was all over you. Do you look back at that with with embarrassment or with regret or it is it is what it is and it led me to this path? How do you sort of go yeah, back? Yeah, because all those all those roads lead you to where you are now. You know, you can't go back and undo them, even if you wanted to. You know, so I've always thought that you know my life was being used to get me to the point of where I am now. You know, or not being used, being led to the point where I am now. Uh, to do the things that I'm doing now. And so in that sense, you know, the old Sinatra song, you know, my way, you know, regrets, right. I've had a few, but 
then again, too few to mention. Uh, I, I kind of take that approach to it because, like I said, it's the totality of all of those events that lead you to where you are at the moment. At the moment. Do, do you then change the way you write songs? Do you approach the music and the lyric writing differently, or do you still do it sort of my way, as you said, and it's just part of the path? Or are there sort of... I don't think I ever did, to be honest okay. with you. I had this conversation with Alice Cooper a few years ago, and him and I both were talking about this, that if you go back, even if you look at our early writings, it's laced with it. Right. You know, and it was laced with it from a perspective of trying to deny it. And, uh, but it was always there. You know, so uh, am I more conscious of it now? Well, absolutely. But I think as a writer, what I'm trying to do is I'm just trying to get people to think. You know, because I think that that's what all art is supposed to do, whether you're a painter or a sculptor or you make movies or whatever you do. If art doesn't make you think, then it's just it's fast food for the eyes or the ears. And and there is a place for that. I'm not saying that, that, that you know, there's anything wrong with it, but it's not what I'm trying to do. You know, I'm trying to get people to think. You know, I want you to either listen to something that we've done and kind of have that, that moment you had after you saw Jaws for the first time or Apocalypse Now for the first time. And, you know, you, you have that uneasy feeling, what did I just see? You know, and you run the tape back in your head and you review it and you analyze it. You know, I mean, that's what I'm trying to do, you know. And when you write lyrics, I'm writing them from the perspective of trying to not just, you know, well, the expression I use is try to write multidimensionally. What I mean by that is I'm using words that can have double meanings where it, whatever you read today or listen to today, it means one thing to you in your life, but five years from now when you're somebody different, you go back and listen to it, those words are going to mean something totally different to you. You know, and that's really what I'm trying to do. So I'm trying to write on multiple levels to do that. And also you want to leave a little bit of a hole in some of those lyrics to get people to fill in the blanks for themselves. Because how does it individually apply to their life at the moment? And I think that's really the the secret to being able to write what I refer to as conversational. You know, kind of like what we're doing right now. Right. That, you know, I'm saying to you, okay, this is who I am in my life now. You know, how's it going with you, you know, and, and what have you experienced, you know? Because I have pretty general tastes. You know, I like the same food and same music as everybody else and I don't have real exotic taste you know so if there's something I think if it'll motivate me enough to write about it then there's probably a pretty good chance other people are going to feel the same way yeah I agree and 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 and, and I'll add that's what I think is great about music now that the fact that MTV is gone because we you know lyrics used you know you said you had holes in them so people to fill them then video came in and filled those blanks, and now we're back to having our imaginations return to us. Um, the discog- Isn't it great? It's absolutely fantastic. And in fact, it's it's almost a pity that MTV happened. I mean, of course we needed it for the business and stuff, but it robbed us of the imagination. When you used to sit with a Kiss record in 1977, the song meant whatever it meant to you, and it was personal. And then it became what you told me it meant via MTV, and it's like... Yeah, but that's not what I had in my head. I don't want that. I want, you know. Um, quickly, the discography. You have never uh, stopped making new albums. Uh, the longest stretch was between Babylon and Golgotha. Uh, talk to me about sort of the importance of keeping new music coming, because, you know, we had the Seattle scene, the grunge scene, and the this. There was plenty of excuses for you to just say, all right, I'm out for five years. But you didn't do it. You kept it coming. Uh, why was that important for you to keep it coming and keep that new music available for fans? Well, I think, as we mentioned before, that if you're going to have a, a true career, and when I say a true career, I'm not somebody, I'm not talking about somebody who makes two or three records, and I'm talking about doing it for 15, 20, 30 years. You know, it's like if you're going to really have a, a real career, what you want to do is you want to take that audience on that lifelong ride with you. And the only way to do that, you just you got to allow them to get inside your head and walk around to see what's in there. And a lot of artists aren't willing to do that because they don't want to share that 
that alter personal stuff with people. They they don't want people to see a lot of their vulnerability a lot of times. But I think if if you don't do that, you can never be intimate with your audience. And if you are not intimate with your audience, I don't think you can take them on that lifelong ride. I agree with that. Um, and of course, the, we'll finish, I guess, with the reidolized tour. You're you're playing the album. Uh, for the fans, talk to me about the, the 25th anniversary tour and will it come to Canada at some point? Because I'm actually in Montreal. Mm-hmm. Well, what we we approached the thing when we first filmed it back in 92, like it was going to be a silent movie. And what I mean by that is, like in the old days when before talkies, you had a silent film and you had maybe a, either a piano player that would come out and play some accompanying music with it or maybe a small orchestra or something like that this is that this is it was designed to look like an art film like an an old silent movie with some special effects in it obviously to modernize it a little bit but it effectively when you see this live this is a band standing up there playing a soundtrack to this silent film that's going on behind you and that was exactly what it was supposed to look like and that's what it looks like. You know, I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing because it's funny. Um, I put the narration in the film and I knew it worked for the film. But when it come time to do this live, I really had cold feet about it because I wasn't sure this was going to work because I'd never done anything like this before. Because from a live perspective, you go out and you hit people over the head with a jackhammer, you know, and you just keep assaulting them. And once that show starts, you don't, this thing is, it's out of control. You can't stop it. Well, that's not what we're doing in this. This thing starts and then it stops. It starts and it stops. And it does that with the narration that's in between the tracks. And eventually it starts to pick up momentum. And it, and it does that by design. But I had never done this before. And so before we, we started the tour, we put two versions of this show together. We put one that had the narration and one without the narration because, quite honestly, I was not convinced that it was going to work because I had never done a, a thing before where I played a song and then just stopped. That nakedness that you feel standing there in front of the audience letting some talking happen, you know, and I was just totally uncomfortable with the idea. Like I said, I knew it worked for the movie, but to try to do this in front of people, I was really uncomfortable about it. And so we said, okay, we'll try it. And we went out, we started in Scandinavia, and the first two nights that we did it, it, it worked exactly like it was supposed to. The people got it. And I breathed a huge sigh of relief because I, I walked out there on pins and needles. You know, I, I, I went out, it was worse than that. I just didn't think it was going to work. And, uh, and it did. And to my surprise, and it worked as good as I could have hoped. Because, you know, a lot of times... You know, when you're you're creating something, you're thinking in your head, you're fantasizing, you know, it can be this and that. But a lot of times it doesn't end up being that, and it falls short. And so, therefore, it's disappointing. But this has been, uh, like I said, it, it hit the, the mark right between the eyes. And I would, a lot of it, too, and, I, and this is going to sound like I'm patronizing the audience a little bit, but it's because they're smart enough to get it. You know, and in a in a a mob situation, which is what a, a live show is, um, a lot of times there's not the ability to think like that. But what I saw night after night was people were coming to this with a different mindset than they would with coming to a regular show, and they had it sussed out before they got there. And there was only a couple of shows that we did where where people I thought didn't get it. But uh, even in the countries that didn't speak English, which was a, a big concern of mine, that they would not be able to follow it, they got it. And um, I got I to gotta tip my hat to those guys for that. And as far as, you know, coming to, to North America, we're looking at plans right now to do some stuff. I don't have anything that I can talk about right now because nothing's finalized. But uh, we would love to bring some of that here, even if it's only for selected dates. Yeah, and it would be great to, uh, to uh, just a great pleasure talking to you today. And uh, just you know, hey, thanks for all the music over well, the years. Well, thanks, Mitch, for taking the time. I sure appreciate it, bud. Absolutely. Have a good one. All right, bud. Look after yourself. Thank you. You bye too. Now. now, bye bye. 
You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. And there you have it, folks. My interview with Blackie Lawless from the band Wasp. Absolutely fabulous. I just, wow. He was so great. So nice. So gracious. Just, I, I just loved everything about that. The way he answered the questions. The way he conducted himself. Just, wow. I mean, thank you, Blackie. That, that was really Really, really a great, great chat, and I thank you for that. Uh, I also thank Frankie Benelli up at the front talking about rock news, uh, his take on uh, the state of classic rock, uh, Glenn Tipton, Pat Torpy, uh, Wasp, of course, was mentioned, and all that wonderful stuff. But now, let us move on to the final interview of the day. It is with Chuck Garrick of Bisto Blanco and, of course, the Alice Cooper Band. He has a new album called Live from Berlin. We talk about that. We talk about all kinds of stuff. Will he or won't he stay with the Alice Cooper group? What? Say what? Yeah. Listen, uh, he mentions that at the very end. So uh, here we go. The one, the only, basis extraordinaire for the Alice Cooper group, or for Alice Cooper, which is, by the way, one of my favorite bands of all time. Throw that in the pile with Kiss and Aerosmith, and Thunder, and just Guns N' Roses, Metallica. Uh, But here he is, Chuck Garrick. We are speaking with the one and only Chuck Garrick of Bisto Blanco. Some of you, of course, may know him from the Alice Cooper Band and some of the other stuff he's done over the years. Chuck, always, always a pleasure. Oh, Mitch, it's great to hear your voice again. Great to be on air with you. I appreciate you bringing me back. We were just talking about uh, how much hard work you've put into your career, and yeah. uh, it's just uh, great that you always think about us. So thank you. Yeah, well, in fact, let's let's talk about that because we were sort of off air talking about how hard it is to go from being writing for nothing to getting all the way up to Westwood One. Talk to me a little bit because I see the trajectory being somewhat similar for Bisto Blanco. You've got the Alice Cooper thing, and that's great, but you also mm-hmm. want to have your own outlet for musical creativity your own thing but it's not necessarily easy in this so so talk to me about the first album to the second album to the live album just sort of building a following and building a uh, uh what do you call it a discography and a repertoire and just let's start yeah. there yeah man it's a good place to start you know i mean like anybody out there that knows it's built a business from the ground up or you know a radio show like yourself and, and a band it's it's it takes time and um, we were never expecting for it to just immediately take off and we were going to be the next biggest band in the world. And we still got a lot of work to do, but when you have a concept and you have a business plan that is forever always changing daily, but (laughs) you sort of have this blueprint and you gather up some people that are, you know, on your side, if you will. And uh, you know, you get your team together and, and you just go for it and you just constantly work hard and you constantly produce stuff that you believe in. And that's what Bisto Blanco has been for me and for my band members and everybody that's been involved. It has had an organic growth to it, which is something I feel is very important because it's sort of the underground thing that got us started and this or organically, this organic love from our fans, which I feel are the the base of of where we're at right now and then it's starting now to spread and get a little bit more to the masses and the more touring we've done and 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 the more studio records we release and now just releasing a live record just constantly giving people material constantly giving them merchandise to keep them involved and, and show them that not only is our fan base growing but we're growing as a band as well and as individuals as artists and you had mentioned earlier that I have Alice Cooper, and I, I am so fortunate to have that. I've been with Alice now 15 years and several records and thousands of tour dates. And, and I just feel very fortunate as a musician to, to, to be able to play with such a legend and such a professional. And, and I've learned so much from Alice Cooper and from Shep Gordon. Yeah, well, how can really you not learn from this, Shep? You know? And by the way, if you haven't yeah. seen the uh, the documentary on Shep, you, you absolutely... Uh, have to check that out um yeah yeah man it's like it's like learning to play guitar and you got to make sure you listen to to billy gibbons you know make sure you listen to those guys and if you want to be a manager get into the business take a listen or take 
take a watch of uh, of Shep's movie and read his books. Yeah. A lot of information in there for everybody out there. Now, the new album is live from Berlin, and we are going to talk about that. We're not going to ignore that. But I do have to say, uh, let me just get back to this idea of building a band and ultimately, yes, building a brand. We know how it is. But when you're just a band and it's you get in a van, you tour, you put out product, you tour, you put out product. But you've got Alice Cooper, which at one on one end is obviously very glorious, very wonderful to have. But on the other end, when he's on the road and you're with him, you can't be touring. Be yeah. So talk to me about sort of the slow build and some of the challenges of working it in within the schedule that you have. Yeah, so there there is definitely a challenge with that. I mean, obviously, Alice is touring during the peak season, which is a time when Bisto could be filling in dates. So far, so good. We've been able to, you know, fill in the gaps, if you will. This year, we just finished a European run, which we we did on the heels of the Alice Cooper tour, which ended in 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 Berlin, in um, Paris, France, on December seventh, and. And we filled dates right there starting December 8th in France and all the way up to Norway. So we were able to gather up 13, 14 shows and, and get a tour in before the end of the year. Um, so my the disadvantage, obviously, is you know not to be able to tour as much as I'd like to. But right now, we're still building this thing. So it does give me some time while I'm on tour with Alice to continue the writing process. Um, to get into the studio, get my guys into the studio, get everybody ready for what's happening next. So we're able to take advantage that way because I am always creating as an artist and I'm always writing, trying to keep my, myself busy. And, and, and I feel like I have a really good grasp on what Bisto is and what we've become and what our live show is. So we're forever building on that. And I try to use my time wisely while I'm on the road with, with Alice and, and do whatever I can with Bisto, um, you know, on the downtime as well, like, you know, these short runs. We're just getting ready to leave here um, February 7th for the Monsters of Rock cruise that, uh, you know, leaves out of Miami for, you know, for a few for a few days. So we're excited about that. So we're able to get some good shows. And as time allows and Alice's schedule frees up, then you can guarantee that I'll be booking shows um, when I have time. Um, talk to me about quickly the writing for Beasto and White because you you're writing for Alice because you you have had songs on Eyes of Alice Cooper, Dirty Diamonds, and stuff. Oh, it, sure. Are are you just sort of in a one frame of mind? And I write these songs and I'll present them, and if Alice takes it, great. And if not, we'll we'll put it in the Beasto side. Or is there very like a process that's very different? Like when Alice says, "Okay, I need a song," you write a certain way, and when Beasto says, or when you have to make an album for Beasto, you go, "Ah." Is there, is there sort of two modes of writing or, or do you just sort of create Absolutely. from one place? Okay. I feel there is, I feel Alice has a very, you know, strong style of music that, I mean, now granted he's had a variety of different records out there. When you look at, you know, some of the early classic records to brutal planet or dragon town, you can hear this just a completely different spin and, 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 and composition and sound on those records, but it still sounds like Alice Cooper. He has, he has a way of phrasing. He has a lyrical uh, thing about him that you can, you can kind of, you don't have to be so safe with Alice, which I really love that. Um, You know, I don't know if he's really gotten into that, you know, over the last couple of records with, you know, for some of the stuff we were doing back in eyes of Alice Cooper, which I thought was a very classic rock sounding Alice Cooper record, you know, but the difference is, is you're right. writing for an artist, you know, but if you were in mind writing for Bisto Blanco, it's a totally different game. The, the, the difference is, is, um, you know, Bisto Blanco is, is, is a completely different entity. It's a different, it's a different beast. It's, it's a different, different beast. It's a different beast. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's got a different vibe, man. And it does. We, we're a different band live. We were a little bit more high energy with some of our stuff, but yet, there, there is a couple of songs or riffs that have made their way into the Bisto Blanco sound that, that I had originally thought, hey, this might be a good Alice Cooper song. But, you know, depending upon how much material he had for these upcoming records at that time or whatever, maybe some of these just didn't make their way there. So I was able to 
sort of mold them and, and twist them and turn them into what I thought might be, you know, Bisto Blanco worthy. And, and uh, the fun thing about writing for Bisto is that, you know, we're sort of the ones that are going to come, we're coming up with everything. So we know that these, these 20 songs that we've written, we know that these 11 are going to make the record and then we continue that process. So we've gathered a bunch of songs and we're writing now for the third studio record. Matter of fact, we're almost halfway done with it. And we're really, we're, we're able to develop the song. So what I'm trying to say is instead of me just presenting a song and then going, no, or no, we don't like it, or no, it doesn't sound like Alice, or, you know, what else you got? It's, it, there's no development there. Right. Where with Bisto, we'll have a song or a riff, and I can go into the producer and say, hey, I've got this idea. And I just sort of got this melody. Or I've got this guitar riff. Let's come up with something. So as a unit, we all sit there and we write a song together. So the song doesn't just lose its opportunity with Bisto as it would for, say, if I was to present it to somebody else. And it just didn't fit their style. And it's not that it's a good song or it's a bad song. It just didn't fit what their their concept is for the record. But the advantage I have is we're able to develop the song that we feel fits us. Let me ask you about that, because you did mention that Alice had different kind of albums, different sounds. I mean, Welcome to My Nightmare, to, to Dragon Town, to Trash, mm-hmm. all very different. Uh, but let me relate this to Bisto Blanco. Is that something that you would like to see develop with the band, with your band, that you're not afraid to make something that's out of left field, that's that you'll experiment with sounds, or do you really want to get more into a sort of an ACDC kind of groove where no, or motorhead, maybe even where this is the sound and this is what we're going to stick to. And when a fan shows up or buys our album, they know they're getting 10 songs that are going to be right between the eyes. And that's it. Yeah, man, we've had this, this conversation for the last few months, that exact conversation, because this next record we're working on does have some material that comes out of left field. And it's just happening naturally. Um, we don't always just want to write a certain format, a certain way. There, there's, I've got way too much to say. We're too good of musicians in a way to just lock ourselves into one thing. Now, I'm not saying we're going to expand and just go crazy. And one song is going to be a blues song. Next song is going to be jazzy or whatever. It still sounds like Bisto, but we may challenge ourselves to go to, to modulate into us, into a, a chorus or stretch out a bridge section or a solo section, come up with different intros, throw in a bar of five in there, whatever, something to change it up a little bit to give the listener a little ear candy, if you will. I mean, as an artist, you want to continue to grow. You want to continue to, to hone in your craft. And, and, and as a songwriter, that's what I'm trying to do. So it still is Bisto, but we're able to, like I said earlier, stretch our, our, our wings a little bit and, and, and just try different things because we can and why not. And yeah. for us, I think it adds, it adds to our set because we are a theatrical band. So we're, you know, in order to be a theatrical band, you've got to have, you've got to have emotion from songs. You've got to have things that touch people musically and, and just gives the, the set a, a, a sort of a roller coaster feel where all of a sudden you will be up at this high energy, but then you've got to drop it down and give them a breath here to let something else develop. And we don't know what it is. Is it a, a guitar part or is it something Calico does on stage? And also... You know, when you think about Calico Cooper in this band, I can't constantly have her singing in one way. She's too great of a singer. She's such a well-rounded performer and a, you know, just an amazing voice that I have to sort of figure out a way for her to be herself and, and, to, and, to, and to showcase some of her talents. So we do have to write a little bit different for Calico. But again, all within the Bisto Blanco sound that we have developed over the last, you know, few years. And, and by the way, uh, the name of the band, I love the name and I love the imagery associated <laughs> with it. Cause it's so perfect. I mean, that that's the kind of logo that you want on a t-shirt because it just looks 
mean and nasty and cool. But all right, so let's talk about this now. So you've done this music on on the albums, and you write in a certain way for the albums. But let's talk about live from Berlin, which is why we're here today. Yeah, uh, yeah. Talk to me about that package, and then you know when you do a live presentation the songs don't always sound like the studio so so talk to me about sort of reinventing the songs or, or putting them for the live format and and then of course yeah. the obvious question is this a live live album or is this a live with a little bit of help album <laughs> good question man um yeah and i will be completely honest with you on that but to back you know just make a um to tell you a little bit about how this developed we um we came across some friends of ours, a gentleman by the name of Michael Wagner, producer, done a lot of Alice Cooper records, obviously, except Motley Crue, you name it. He's Skid done it. Row, he great here in White, Nashville, Tennessee. Right? Great White. I mean, yeah. Michael's become a dear friend. And long story short was Michael invited me down to, to meet some guys that were here from Germany that he was mixing and recording their record, the guitars and mixing their record. And they're called the Bursay Uncles. And I've never heard of them. And like most people in the United States, haven't as well. Well, it turns out that they're one of the biggest bands in Germany. And when I say big, I mean huge. These guys will play in front of 150, 200,000 people when they play. It's, they're massive. We just got to talking and we got to hanging out and, and sharing music. And they took a look at Bisto Blanco and they asked us, hey, would you guys like to open up for us on our arena tour throughout Germany, Austria and Switzerland? I immediately said yes. And, you know, a few months later, we were on our way over there to Germany and and going to start this tour with them, which was uh, an arena tour, 19 shows. Um and it was one of the best experiences we could have ever had as a band because it turned us into an arena band. We hadn't had that opportunity yet. We've been playing clubs when I've had the experiences of playing on bigger stages, but as a lead singer and as a guitar player, I hadn't had that yet. So it was great for us and the crew and the band, everybody in general were fantastic to us. The crowd simply got into it they loved it they didn't have to the shows were sold out before we were even announced on tour but they were fantastic to us and they were a tough crowd to win over but we did it every night so as it turns out as the tour progressed you know we just started becoming tighter and tighter as a band um it just became you know second nature for us to just get up there and do our thing um michael mannix the front of house engineer for the uncles you know, came up to me and said, Hey man, here you go. I got a couple of live shows here for you. We, uh, we, uh, track and go ahead and, and, and use them if you feel they're good. So I took them into the studio, gave it to my producer, Ryan green, we threw them up on pro tools. And we were just shocked at what we had, we were listening to because the quality was so great. We realized that it was there. The, the, the nuts and bolts, everything was there. The drums, the bass, the guitar, and the vocals were all there. We just needed to do a couple little things. I think like on all live records, there's going to be some fixes. And there were a couple of little fixes, of course. You know, you want to make sure that there's not those, those things that just stand out that you're having a hard time mixing out of the record. But I will tell you, when you listen back to this record, the crowd, the sound, all that stuff, that is for real. And by the way, for, for those who, who don't know, bon, Bonze Uncle, they, they've been around since... Well, ni- first a, album was 84, and they've had over 5 yeah. million album sales. It, it, it's amazing, yeah. by the way, because I'm, I'm very much into the European uh, scene. I, I love a band called Thunder, you know, and, and, yeah. and of course, you just did some shows with Thunder with Alice Cooper. Yep. Huge yeah. in the UK, uh, tw- uh, 25 years or whatever they've been around. And you, you mentioned yeah. that to somebody in, in Montreal or L.A. and they go, who, who are you talking about? It's just it's bizarre how yeah. sometimes music doesn't translate or doesn't cross borders. It's... Well, they sing in German. You know, the, well, the uncles, yeah. they sing in German. And, and, um, and uh, you know, I, 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 I encourage your fans because they are a rock band to check them out. It's B-O-H-S-E-O-N-K-E-L-Z is how you pronounce it or how you spell their name. A couple of different ways to pronounce it, but uh, I even mispronounce it because it is sort of a misspelled word in German. Standing, it means evil uncles. Um, but anyway, it was just turned out to be a great tour for us. It opened a ton of doors. They've been fantastic to us. We're on the Metropolis, um 
festival this year, June 22nd. Us, the uncles, Megadeth, Backyard Babies. There's a bunch of different bands on there. See, there, uh, there you go, Backyard Babies. So. Great band out yeah, of Sweden. I love man. that band. Yeah, Incredible man. band. Yeah. Their last album that came out a couple of years ago is one of their best ever. And again, you, you, you go down the streets no. of Montreal and you say Backyard Babies, and they go, <laughs> who? No. And it's like, oh, come on now. Yeah, see, man, and we're just so stoked to be now the name, to, for me to see the name Bisto Blanco in the same mix and the same lineup with some of these bands that, you know, and like we had talked about before at the beginning of the show, man, I'm starting to see our name in the mix with these bands. I'm really feeling Deservingly an accomplishment so. here. Yeah, man, and thank you very much. We've been working our asses off, and we're delivering good rock and roll music that we feel is worthy. And we're going out there, and like I said earlier, when I get the opportunity, I'm bringing it to the people. And, uh, and so far, we just did our European run, and the people are showing up. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a good time right now to be in Viso Blanco. Right. Area. Now, now I'm going to ask you the trick question, which you may not be able to answer. But Bisto Blanco, La, uh, Live Fast, Die Loud, Bisto Blanco, the second one, Live from Berlin, great albums, mm-hmm. really great albums. Mm-hmm. If folks haven't checked them out. Thank you. But let's say you're on these tours, you're out with the uncles, and you're, and it hits, and 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 you're in demand, and and it becomes the thing. Do you at some point move away from the Alice Cooper band, or it's Alice first? That's my home, and it doesn't matter how popular B and B gets. This loyalty first. <laughs> tough question. Hey man, I, I, I it unfair is a tough question, question because yeah, and it's unfair. It is an unfair question. Yeah, absolutely. I will tell you this, <laughs> Alice Cooper is family i uh, i've spent a lot of time hanging with alice and his family chef we played a lot of golf we've 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 you know been in the studio together on tour together my my dedication and my devotion is always going to be to alice as an artist and as a friend but as a businessman that alice and chef both are they would pull me aside and I don't know what they would do to me if I was to turn down an opportunity to better my life and to better my family's life and to better my career. They would completely understand and they would completely back me on that decision. So as a business you know decision, I agree if that with was that. the case, then yes. you know, I will agree with that. And I'll even cite an example. Uh, Damon Johnson came to the band mm-hmm. at some point and said, I need to go do this other stuff. We need to do Black Star Writers. I yeah. need to. And yeah. there was no animosity that he went, yes, of course. Go do what you need to yeah. do. So um, where do we go from here? You mentioned a third album, uh, working on it. Is that something that mm-hmm. we see in 2018? Or is that something that is sort of a concept that it'll be when it'll be? You will hear this record this year absolutely absolutely um yeah all right, all right. so where, where else do we want to go in our conversation oh in well fact, i tell you yeah go ahead the was, only way i can continue to tour this mitch like we talked about earlier is i have to keep i have to keep producing product material songs there's got to be a way that we continue this thing to tour to keep pushing the product and that's by releasing records, keeping it keeping it current. But I, I did have a question about yeah. you, you did help Alice with his um, uh, nights with Alice Cooper show. I remember one time backstage in, at a show in Ottawa, you had to run off and like produce a segment or do something for the radio show. <laughs> um, talk yeah. to me about that. Is that something that you still are currently involved with? Was that just a, a one time exception that you, you needed to patch up? Talk to me about the involvement. No, no. Okay. The thing with that, Mitch, is that I am the engineer for Nights with Alice Cooper while we are on the road, uh, while Alice Cooper and I are on the road together. So I record the show for Nights with Alice Cooper while we are on tour, in the bu- on the bus, in hotel rooms, backstage, on airplanes, in airports, wherever we have to do it, I do it. And uh, so what you what I had to do at that particular time was probably leave to go meet Coop so we could get one of his shows done. Because remember, this is on five days a week, you know, 365 days. So, Is that something, as as we all get older and we move on, that you might be interested in to moving into 
you know, television production or radio production or, or being, or is it sort of rock and roll till I die? <laughs> well, I think it's always going to be rock and roll till I die. But the thing is, is, because you end up doing something else doesn't mean rock and roll has to die. Although I have no intentions of doing anything at this particular moment, except continue my career as a bass player with Alice Cooper and as a front man with Fabisto Blanco. Uh, I, I've done a lot, obviously, with our music videos. I'm always in the fold of producing, directing, creating at some shape or form something. So who knows? Whatever life presents to me, I, you know, I may be, uh, I may be intrigued to, to move on and, and try something new. I mean, why not? Yeah, it's exactly it. Chuck, always, always a pleasure. I would gladly stay on the phone for the next half hour, but I do have cheap trick calling in next so oh, man uh, priorities bro let's go Come no but on, i'm telling you i feel i feel trick. like i'm eight years old you know talking to a member of yeah. the cooper band and then talking to a member of cheap trick i mean <laughs> what, what who are you talking to Can you tell it me? is yes of course it is going to be dax nielsen um, uh, rick's oh, okay. son and, and i i love yeah. the idea of talking to dax just because uh, you know, he's come into a very unique situation. Being a replacement player in a band is a situation, but being the replacement player in a dad's band, um, yeah, that's got to be, yeah. that's just got to be a different energy and a different vibe. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it really well, is. Tell him I said hello. He's a, he's a good friend of mine and um, <laughs> we, we know each other very well. So tell him I said hello. Have a great interview, and thanks for having me today, man. Absolutely. Anytime, and we will see you, hopefully, in Montreal later this year. I look forward to it, my brother. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn.